Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Iris and to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. It's Friday, February 3rd. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's begin by reading the weather forecast from KCRG in Cedar Rapids. We have one more day of Arctic air, then this stuff will move on. Plan on cold temperatures today, and a wind chill advisory continues through 10 a.m. This afternoon, highs will generally range from the single digits over the deep snow north to mid-teens from I-80 and points south. This weekend, the snowpack will play a massive role as to how warm your location will get. Saturday, Cedar Rapids should make a run at 40 degrees, with Iowa City and points south seeing highs well up into the 40s. In contrast, the deeper snow cover will hold northern Iowa back to mid to upper 30s for highs. Sunday will be a little cooler for everybody, but still pretty decent compared to where we have been. Look for a weak system to affect our area on Monday, especially the northern half again. As we look at the stories on the front page of The Courier today, we have these stories to read. GOP supports 3% funding boost. Fire chief to retire under proposed agreement. AEA summit addresses cyber threats. And let's begin reading the other weather-related story for this morning. Six more weeks of winter predicted. Phil's Groundhog Day prediction. Six more weeks of winter. The story from the Associated Press. Dateline. Poxitwani, Pennsylvania, a furry critter in a western Pennsylvania town, has predicted six more weeks of winter during an annual Groundhog Day celebration. People gathered Thursday at Gobbler's Knob as members of Poxitwani Phil's inner circle summoned the groundhog from the tree stump at dawn to learn if he had seen his shadow, and they say he did. According to folklore, if he sees his shadow, there will be six more weeks of winter. If he doesn't, spring comes early. The Inner Circle is a group of local dignitaries who are responsible for planning the events, as well as feeding and caring for Phil himself. The annual event in Puxatwani, about 65 miles north of Pittsburgh, originated from a German legend about a furry rodent. The gathering annually attracts thousands. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration compared Puxatwani Phil's forecast to the national weather the last 10 years and found, on average, Phil has gotten it right 40% of the time, unquote. This year, Phil's prediction came during a week when a mess of ice, sleet, and snow has lingered across most of the southern United States. According to records dating back to 1887, Phil has predicted winter more than 100 times. Ten years were lost because no records were kept, organizers said. The 2021 and 2022 forecasts also called for six more weeks of winter. While Puxatwani Phil may be the most famous groundhog seer, he's certainly not the only one. New York City Staten Island Chuck made his prediction for an early spring during an event Thursday at Staten Island Zoo. Phil and Chuck are among a broad selection of rodents that purportedly predict weather. Next, we have a story that Andy Malone filed. It's titled, Cedar Falls Fire Chief Would Retire Under Proposed Agreement. 
Dateline Cedar Falls. Fire Chief John Bostwick would retire under a proposed agreement that ends an investigation into work hour discrepancies and avoids any future litigation. A terminal leave of absence, resignation, and mutual release agreement awaits the authorization of the City Council during its 7 p.m. Monday meeting at City Hall, 220 Clay Street. If approved, Bostwick would serve as an administrative consultant until he retires on October 15th. He would receive his regular salary and maintain health insurance benefits while serving in the consultant role. Quote, an investigation was conducted into discrepancies into the management of the paid-on-call firefighter program that was managed by Bostwick, states the agreement. Quote, it was determined that an employee failed to work the number of hours required by the program. Bostwick acknowledges the discrepancy, but did not receive any compensation or money that was not due him as the fire chief, unquote. No other details of the investigation were provided in the agreement. The paid on-call program involves city employees who've been cross-trained for police or fire-related responsibilities and are called upon in certain instances. Bostwick signed the agreement Tuesday, acknowledging that the terminal leave of absence in retirement is irrevocable. However, a clause states that he could revoke the agreement in seven days following its execution. Bostwick, a 40-year veteran of the department, and Mike Nyman, formerly the city's water reclamation manager and a paid on-call firefighter, were placed on leave October 19th as part of the investigation. Nyman retired. Any retirement agreement with him would not have come up before the council because his employment is a staff-level decision. His job was posted, and Tyler Griffin has been named the interim manager as the city conducts a search for Nyman's permanent replacement, who will receive a salary between $81,000 and $131,000. Captain John Zolendek, who has been fulfilling fire chief responsibilities during Bostwick's absence. If the agreement becomes effective, Mayor Rob Green said an acting chief will be named by Public Safety Director Craig Bertie soon after. The council and Green would need to formalize that decision if the interim period extends beyond a certain number of days. Green deferred naming the other employee in the agreement and the spark for the investigation to City Attorney Kevin Rogers. He said two people are enrolled in the fire on-call program and only one of them played a role in the discrepancy, but more people were involved in the investigation than were referred in the agreement. Other details may be released, but Green said he is awaiting approval from the city attorney. No additional information had been provided as of press time Thursday. Green wouldn't comment on Bostwick's lengthy service to the city, but anticipates doing so in the future. The matter involving personal conduct is now closed, Green said. Quote, it's very important that we protect people's privacy rights within the city, he explained. Quote, our employees deserve that and are entitled to that by state law under Iowa Code Chapter 22. Quote, I've done my best to provide information as soon as possible and to provide the amount of information that I'm legally allowed to provide. And certainly, 
The city has nothing to hide in this matter. We want to get information out, but we have to do it in a way that protects people's individual privacy and the due process of law, unquote. Bostwick declined to comment when reached by telephone on Wednesday. The agreement requires Bostwick to return all municipal properties to the city. His responsibilities as an administrative consultant have him responding to field calls from fire personnel, as well as assisting remotely. He would not be required to be physically present on city property, but is allowed to be if summoned. Bostwick would not be allowed to seek re-employment with the city, the agreement states, unless he's elected to a position. Next, we have a story filed by Maria Cooper. Central Rivers Area Education Agency, Summit, addresses cyber threats. Dateline Cedar Falls. Amidst cyber threats on Iowa schools, educators came together Thursday to discuss cybersecurity. Central Rivers Area Education Agency held a cybersecurity summit at its headquarters. Superintendents, informational technology specialists, business managers, and public relations staff were invited to attend. Quote, it makes me sad we're talking about this in education, said Sarah Nelson, the agency's director of IT and special programs. Quote, it's not about if, but when. We can be confident when it happens that we will know what to do. Aaron Warner, the chief executive officer of Iowa-based cybersecurity and compliance firm ProCircular, said in his keynote address, that kindergarten through 12th grade schools are becoming increasingly targeted because hacks are time-sensitive. They know when you have thousands of students coming back on Monday and they hit you on Saturday, they know you're more likely to pay, Warner said. Hackers will gain access to systems and commonly require the computer users to pay in order to get their system and information back. Warner said there is valuable data within school systems, such as information about both students and faculty. Such information for people under the age of 18 is very valuable, he noted. They most likely have no criminal record or tax filings, and there's a smaller chance that targeting them will be tracked back as fraud. Matt O'Brien, the director of technology for Waterloo Community Schools, said the FBI recently put out a specific memo regarding cybersecurity and K-12 schools. Quote, We've known we're becoming more and more on the radar for nefarious actors, O'Brien said. Now we've had four large school districts that have had breaches this year that ever cements the realness of the threat and further increases the sense of urgency, unquote. In early January, there was a cyber attack on Des Moines Public Schools, which resulted in its buildings closing for three days while officials worked to resolve problems with the computer network. On January 24th, the district announced it was continuing to fix the issue. The school district is the largest in Iowa, with 30,000 students and 5,000 employees. In the summer of 2022, the Lindmark Community Schools in Marion detected unusual activity on its servers. The district later deemed it a computer breach or an incident that resulted in unauthorized access to private information. This happened just a month after the Cedar Rapids Community Schools had its own ransomware attack, 
which compromised personal information of almost 9,000 current and former employees, according to the Gazette. The Quad City Times reported that Davenport Community Schools was also affected by a cyber attack in October. Warner said people can help prevent security breaches by doing regular backups and using two-factor authorization, which will ask for a password and then send a code to a phone or email before granting access to the site. He also reiterated that people should not click risky-looking links or befriend people on social networks whom they don't know. After his presentation, Werner said K-12 schools are a treasure trove of information. Quote, Iowa AEAs are doing a good job at taking the subject seriously, he said. Next, we have the story that appeared at the top of the front page, and it's written by Aaron Murphy. GOP supports 3% funding boost. Senate approves state aid for schools. House Republicans favor the plan. Dateline Des Moines. Iowa's K-12 public schools would get a 3% increase in per-pupil state funding for the next school year under proposals from the Republican majorities in the House and Senate, larger than the increase sought by the governor, but smaller than what Democrats wanted. The Iowa Senate approved the funding proposal Thursday. The House will consider the proposal next week. Republicans there also are supporting a 3% increase. Governor Kim Reynolds' proposed budget, published in January, included a 2.5% increase in per-pupil K-12 public school funding. Republican legislative leaders said they have not discussed the increased funding level with Reynolds, and her office did not respond to a request for comment on Thursday. The proposed legislation allocates $3.7 billion in general funding to Iowa's 327 K-12 public school districts, an increase of nearly $124 million over the current year, according to an analysis by the state's nonpartisan legislative services agency. Iowa's total state general fund budget for the current budget year is roughly $8.2 billion. Quote, I'll start with the word conservative with no apology. We have a conservative budgeting policy, and people in increasing numbers sent us back to the Iowa House and Senate, said Senator Ken Rosenboom, a Republican from Oskaloosa, who chairs the Senate's Education Committee. Quote, this reflects our conservatism. This is sustainable, unquote. Representative Pat Grassley, the House Speaker from New Hartford, said House Republicans also will support a 3% public school funding increase. Quote, we know that's something that works in the budget, Grassley told reporters Thursday. Quote, we thought that was a very, very solid number to be able to show support for our public school systems. Unquote. Earlier this season, State House Republicans approved a new program that, at full implementation in four years, will each year make roughly $7,600 in state-funded private school aid available for any K-12 student in Iowa. The program is projected to cost the state $345 million annually. Democrats in the Senate this week proposed a public school funding increase of roughly 6%, which would amount to an additional $267 million. 
Democrats said that equals what Republicans have proposed for the new private school financial aid program this year, plus a reduction in corporate income taxes approved last year. Democrats pitched their proposal as an amendment to Republicans' bill. It was defeated, mostly along party lines, with Republican Senator Charlie McClintock of Alburnett voting with the Democrats. Quote, shortchanging Iowa's public schools is shortchanging the future of Iowa's kids. That's the inescapable truth, said Senator Herman Krimak of Ames, the top Democrat on the Senate Education Committee and a former Iowa State University professor. Quote, we're proposing a different set of priorities. Our priorities and our obligations are to the public school students of Iowa, unquote. Since Republicans regained at least partial control of state lawmaking process in 2011, state general funding for public K-12 schools has increased by an average of 1.9% annually over the previous 38 years under the current state school funding formula. That funding increased by an average of 5% annually, according to the legislative agency's data. The 3% increase proposed by the legislative Republicans would be the second-largest increase since 2011, trailing only the 4% increase implemented for 2014-15 school year, according to the data. Democrats argue the lower rates of annual funding increases over the past decade-plus have not kept up with inflation, creating fiscal challenges for school districts. In addition to their proposed 6% increase in per-pupil funding, Democrats also pitched amendments that would fund all-day four-year-old preschool in all districts, funding boosts for special education programs, and per-pupil funding for low-income students. All were defeated on party-line votes. Similarly, the final vote on Senate File 192 was a party-line vote, 34 to 15, with Republicans supporting and Democrats opposing. Next, we have a story that comes from the Associated Press. In the wake of Tyree Nichols's death, past defeats on police reform haunt Congress, Dateline Washington, weeks before President Joe Biden made his first address to Congress in 2021. A graphic video was released of a black man being killed at the hands of police. The country watched the now hauntingly familiar scene play out across its screens. Family members tearfully pleaded for change. Lawmakers in Washington pledged to pass meaningful reform. Biden pumped momentum into talks during the nationally televised address, telling Congress to get it done by next month, the anniversary of Minneapolis police officers' killing of another black man, George Floyd. Quote, We've all seen the knee of injustice on the neck of black Americans, the Democratic president said. Quote, now is our opportunity to make some real progress, unquote. And then, as before, negotiations fell apart along partisan lines, pushing the issue of police brutality to the back of the line of legislative priorities, underscoring, again, how Congress often fails to deliver solutions even when there is broad agreement on the problem. As Biden begins his third year in office, there is another deadly sequel. A video released last week 
showed the violent January 7th encounter between Tyree Nichols and the Memphis, Tennessee police officers who savagely beat the 29-year-old black FedEx worker for three minutes while screaming profanities at him. Nichols was hospitalized and died days later. Five police officers, who also are black, were fired and charged with second-degree murder and other offenses in his beating and death. On Monday, two more Memphis police officers were disciplined and three emergency medical technicians were fired in the case. Nichols's parents are set to attend Biden's State of the Union address next week, hoping to increase pressure on the president and Washington. And the same lawmakers who were close to a deal last time are now looking to see if any remnants of a compromise have the chance of passing a newly divided Congress. Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris met with members of the Congressional Black Caucus on Thursday to explore the possibility of getting such a bill back on track. Quote, my hope is this dark memory spurs some action that we've all been fighting for, Biden said before the start of the Oval Office meeting. At the White House, where Senators Raphael Warnock of Georgia and Cory Booker of New Jersey, two of the three black senators, and Representatives Steve Horsfield of Nevada, Sheila Jackson Lee of Texas, Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, and Joy Naguz of Colorado. Horsfield, the caucus chairman, said it was long past time to have a genuine conversation about policing in America. Quote, I am working to make sure that we have a clear plan. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, the sole black Republican senator, emerged as one of the lead negotiators in the Senate after the brutal police killing of Floyd in 2020. He and Booker embarked on a nine-month painstaking negotiation. The talks focused on writing compromise legislation, curbing law enforcement agencies' use of force, and making them more accountable for abuses. But negotiations stalled over Democrats' demands to make individual police officers accused of abuses liable for civil penalties. It's currently difficult to pursue such actions called qualified immunity in all but the most egregious cases. Republicans and law enforcement groups like the Fraternal Order of Police have resisted easing those limitations. Jim Pasco, executive director of the Fraternal Order of Police, said he was in touch with the White House last Friday when the video of Nichols's beating became public about whether the situation could be a catalyst to getting things moving again. His organization, the nation's largest police union, had participated in previous attempts to reach a bipartisan deal. It agreed on banning chokeholds, curbing the transfer of military equipment to police, and increasing funds for mental health programs. Those agreements are now the foundation for any negotiations in the week of Nichols's death. Pasco said, We're kind of in a wait-and-see mode right now, with Republicans now controlling the House, making the legislative process harder. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, on Thursday signaled an openness to discussing the issue. Scott said resurrecting the previous Democratic bill is a non-starter. He implored Democrats to put aside tribalism 
in order to strike a deal. Quote, we've been working toward common ground solutions that actually have a shot at passing, he said. Solutions to increased funding and training to make sure only the best wear the badge, unquote. At Nichols's funeral in Memphis on Wednesday, Vice President Harris demanded that Congress pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, legislation she co-authored during her time in the Senate. Nichols's loved ones echoed the statement, quote, We need to take some action because there should be no other child that should suffer the way my son and all the other parents here have lost their children. We need to get that bill passed. Raul Vaughn Wells said Wednesday as they buried her son, quote, Because if we don't, that blood, the next child that dies, that blood is going to be on their hands, unquote. And now let's turn the page to the Cedar Valley section, and the top story there is UNI College Tour episode to make debut. West grad to be among those featured in the College Tour episode about UNI. Dateline Cedar Falls. A 2020 Waterloo West High School graduate is making the most of his time at University of Northern Iowa. Ethan Ahrens, a junior studying digital media production, applied to be part of the, quote, college tour series episode about UNI and was selected to share more with audiences about the hands-on experience he's received while studying at the state school. The university is hosting a special launch party for the premiere of UNI's episode at 6.30 p.m. Wednesday at the Gallagher Blue Dorn Performing Arts Center, 8201 Dakota Street. In mid-October, 10 students were filming for the 30-minute episode focused on campus life and experience. UNI joins a group of about 80 higher education institutions that have their own videos as part of the Amazon Prime series created and hosted by Alex Boylan, a well-known reality show contestant, television show host, film producer, and traveler. Quote, I wrote up my own script and thought they would edit it heavily, but they maybe changed two sentences, Aaron's 20 explained. The small film crew then shot segments of him working and reading his script at Lang Hall while inside a campus television news studio, audio recording studio, editing lab, production class, and the hallways of the building. He's not yet sure what made the final cut. Quote, it wasn't long, maybe an hour and a half tops, that I was working with them, Aaron said. I was surprised at how calm the director was. You hear horror stories of people being on movie sets for three days, and I haven't heard anybody say that film or TV production is an easy thing to be part of. During the filming, Aaron's also got the chance to see some of the high-level cameras being used, as well as learn about the various challenges and triumphs that happen on set. Quote, I've been interested in video production ever since I took an introduction class as a sophomore in high school, and I would make movies for fun of anything that came to mind, said Aarons. His proud personal experiences range from documenting UNI students and faculty at a Wind Cave National Park in South Dakota as part of a research trip, to making a short video his freshman year that revolved around a haiku poem. 
He hopes his path leads him to creating fun content on the side or as his primary occupation. One of his early ideas is creating videos that involves fun facts about crazy things to have happened in history. He admits that he has to find a way to make them different from what else is already out there in the crowded market. Quote, I can tell you that I don't want to be a vlogger or someone who's reacting to various things, he said. Aaron's hopes to attend the free 6.30 p.m. pre-premiere party Wednesday in the Gallagher Blue Dorn Performing Arts Center lobby. The viewing follows at 7.30 p.m. in the center's Davis Hall. Attendees will have the opportunity to meet him and other cast members and enjoy special treats. Following the premiere, look for the 10 individual segments to be released gradually on official UNI web and social media platforms. While Aaron's has seen an episode teaser with him shown for a second, he hasn't seen any part of the full show yet. He's excited to see the final product and what others have shared about their college experience. Quote, this will be something I can look back on when I'm 60, and will help me remember what I was like in college, Aaron said. And now, listeners, we want to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, February 3rd, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, since today's courier does not list any obituaries, we'll turn now to the opinion section, and then after that, come back to more local news from the Courier. Our first editorial comes from the editorial board of the Des Moines Register. Republican legislation targets vulnerable LGBTQ plus Iowans. To advance society, communities need an opportunity to engage in issues openly without fear of reprisal or coercion. These proposals actively shut down that engagement. This one is written by Andrea Franz, a guest columnist. Andrea Franz is a Storm Lake resident and the executive director of the Society for Collegiate Journalists. This essay is also signed by Storm Lake LGBTQ plus advocates and community members Wind Goodfriend, Meg McKeon, Gus Raymond, Joel Baring Jr., the Reverend Melanie Hauser, Willa J. Stevens, and Maggie Martinez. And here we go. Iowa has a history of saying gay before others. In 2009, Iowa became just the third state in the nation to recognize gay marriage as a legal right, according to its state Supreme Court decision, Varnum v. Brian. So, we Iowans not only can say gay, but most of us understand that doing so makes us stronger as a community. Simply put, words matter. They determine the ways in which we can connect with others and clearly indicate where we diverge. Such awareness ensures our ability to make decisions that impact our individual health, safety, and engagement with the broader world. Conversely, for government to either silence speech or compel it is not only unconstitutional, but also undermines the very fabric of American society. Unfortunately, as history has long shown us, governments seem unable to resist trying. Why? Because if successful, the silencers remain in power. It should come as no surprise that Republican Iowa legislators, emboldened by midterm wins and 
GOP Governor Kim Reynolds, rising national star, feel they have a blank check to focus their agenda on pandering to the extreme element of the conservative base by targeting LGBTQ plus Iowans. Under the cynical guise of defending parental rights, Iowa legislators are attempting to follow the lead of Florida's Don't Say Gay Law, enacted in March of 2022, that prohibits, quote, classroom discussion about sexual orientation or gender identity, unquote, in the state's public schools. Those conservative coattails look like Iowa House File 7, House File 8, and House File 9, respectively. In classic overreach, the House File 7 seeks to limit speech on its public college campuses by, among other things, imposing onerous reporting requirements on how universities teach about social justice, including, but not limited to, LGBTQ plus issues. Under the proposal, public schools would be required to, quote, report with specificity on how a long list of concepts such as teaching with humanizing orientation, peace building, teaching for prejudice reduction, and anti-oppressive literature, among many others, are used in teacher education classrooms. Such burdensome reporting requirements will naturally chill free speech and limit academic preparation for Iowa's future teachers, who will undoubtedly grapple with and now be less prepared for complex equity issues in the classroom as professionals. A more focused targeting of LGBTQ plus Iowans can be found in House Files 8 and 9. Given the recent efforts by some to remove books from school libraries or curricula that address gender identity issues, it naturally follows that GOP legislators are seeking to capitalize on false claims of sexual grooming by prohibiting instruction relating to gender identity and sexual orientation with House File 8. This proposal will prohibit any discussion of gender identity in kindergarten through third grade classrooms under the false claim that to have any conversation whatsoever sexualizes children. The problem hinges on what constitutes instruction. No teacher sets off to offer instruction in how to be or become a member of the LGBTQ plus community. No one. This is not about indoctrination. It is about inclusion. If a child with two same-sex parents has the opportunity to read a book about a family with same-sex parents, it bolsters that child's sense that they are not alone. Seeing oneself in this light can be life-affirming. According to a survey released in 2022 by the Trevor Project, nearly half of all LGBTQ plus youth seriously considered attempting suicide in the past year. Ultimately, marginalized youth are at higher risk for depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts when they are stigmatized or ostracized by the broader community. Active silencing or the erasure of LGBTQ plus perspective from community conversation undermines a child's ability to see themselves as a valued member in that community. Such isolation can have deadly consequences and strengthens existing social divisions that foster bullying and other abuses. If government silencing to perpetuate systemic inequality can be understood as a violation of our democratic values, 
it's not hard to look at compelled speech as its evil twin equivalent. House File 9 sets out to do just that. The bill's third point reads, quote, Each school district is prohibited from willfully withholding information or knowingly giving false information to the parent or guardian of a student regarding the student's gender identity or intention to transition, unquote. In essence, legislators will require teachers to tell parents if they know or suspect that their child is wrestling with gender identity issues. If all homes were harmonious and unconditionally supportive of LGBTQ plus children, this might not cause damage. They're not. The evidence of House File 9 alone indicates that some children feel safer confiding in a trusted teacher or counselor before their own parents when it comes to sexual orientation or gender identity. We need only look at the comparatively far higher rates of homelessness among LGBTQ plus youth to understand that compulsory outing of young people's sexuality and gender identity can have dire consequences. According to the National Network for Youth, quote, family conflict is the primary cause of homelessness for LGBTQ plus youth, which is disproportionately due to a lack of acceptance by family members of a youth's sexual orientation or gender identity, unquote. Iowa's GOP legislators have privileged these three initiatives among their top goals for the coming year. Their enactment will cause irreparable damage to our LGBTQ plus communities, especially youth, and severely limit Iowans' ability to say what is on their minds, or not as they see fit. To advance society, communities need an opportunity to engage in issues openly, without fear of reprisal or coercion. These proposals actively shut down that engagement. This next piece was written by Paul Krugman of the New York Times, and it is titled, Can Anything Be Done to Assuage Rural Rage? Rural resentment has become a central fact of American politics, in particular, a pillar of support for the rise of right-wing extremism. As the Republican Party has moved even further into MAGA land, it has lost votes among educated suburban voters, but this has been offset by a drastic rightward shift in rural areas, which in some places has gone so far that the Democrats who remain face intimidation and are afraid to reveal their party affiliation. But is this shift permanent? Can anything be done to assuage rural rage? The answer will depend on two things, whether it's possible to improve rural lives and restore rural communities, and whether the votes in these communities will give politicians credit for any improvements that do take place. This week, my colleague Thomas B. Edsel surveyed research on rural Republican shift. I was struck by his summary of work by Catherine J. Kramer, who attributes rural resentment to perceptions that rural areas are ignored by policymakers, don't get their fair share of resources, and are disrespected by, quote, city folks. As it happens, all three perceptions are largely wrong. I'm sure that my saying this will generate a tidal wave of hate mail and lecturing rural Americans about policy reality isn't going to move their votes. Nonetheless, it's important to get our facts straight. The truth is, 
that ever since the New Deal, rural America has received special treatment from policymakers. It's not just farm subsidies, which ballooned under Donald Trump to the point where they accounted for around 40% of total farm income. Rural America also benefits from special programs that support housing, utilities, and business in general. In terms of resources, major federal programs disproportionately benefit rural areas, in part because such areas have a disproportionate number of seniors receiving Social Security and Medicare. But even means-tested programs, programs that Republicans also disparage as welfare, tilt rural. Notably, at this point, rural Americans are more likely than urban Americans to be on Medicaid and receive food stamps. And because rural America is poorer than urban America, it pays much less per person in federal taxes. So in practice, major metropolitan areas hugely subsidize the countryside. These subsidies don't just support incomes. They support economies. Government and the so-called health care and social assistance sector each employ more people in rural America than agriculture. And what do you think pays for those jobs? What about rural perceptions of being disrespected? Well, many people have negative views about people with different lifestyles. That's human nature. There is, however, an unwritten rule in American politics that it's okay for politicians to seek rural votes by insulting big cities and their residents, but it would be unforgivable for urban politicians to return the favor. Quote, I have to go to New York City soon, unquote tweeted J.D. Vance during his senatorial campaign, quote, I have heard it's disgusting and violent there, unquote. Can you imagine, say, Chuck Schumer saying something similar about rural Ohio, even as a joke? So the ostensible justifications for rural resentment don't withstand scrutiny, but that doesn't mean things are fine. A changing economy has increasingly favored metropolitan areas with large college-educated workforces over small towns. The rural working-age population has been declining, leaving seniors behind. Rural men in their prime working years are much more likely than their metropolitan counterpoints to not be working. Rural woes are real. Ironically, however, the policy agenda of the party most rural voters support would make things even worse, slashing the safety net programs these voters depend on and Democrats shouldn't be afraid to point this out. But can they also have a positive agenda for rural renewal? As the Washington Post's Greg Sargent recently pointed out, the infrastructure spending bills enacted under President Biden, while primarily intended to address climate change, will also create large numbers of blue-collar jobs in rural areas and small cities. They are, in practice, a form of the place-based industrial policy some economists have urged to fight America's growing geographic disparities. Will they work? The economic forces that have been hollowing out rural America are deep and not easily countered, but it's certainly worth trying. But even if these policies improve rural fortunes, will Democrats get any credit? It's easy to be cynical. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the new governor of Arkansas, has pledged to get the bureaucratic tyrants of Washington out of your wallets. In 2019, the federal government spent almost twice as much in Arkansas as it collected in taxes. 
de facto providing the average Arkansas resident with $5,500 in aid. So even if Democratic policies greatly improve rural lives, will rural voters notice? Still, anything that helps reverse rural America's decline would be a good thing in itself. And maybe, just maybe, reducing the heartland's economic desperation will also help reverse its political radicalization. Now, listeners, let's turn to the sports page. In college men's basketball, Bourne's 30, not enough as UNI falls to Drake, story filed by Ethan Petrick, and begins with a photograph of Northern Iowa guard Bowen Bourne, who drives up court past Drake guard during the first half of an NCAA college basketball game Wednesday, February 1st, in Des Moines. Bowen Bourne cashed in on buzzer beaters at the end of regulation and overtime en route to a 30-point game, but Northern Iowa fell short 88-81 in double overtime against in-state rival Drake. Panthers head coach Ben Jacobson described the game as a blast, despite the loss, and said he was really proud of the effort from his team. Quote, we talked about a little in the locker room with the guys. It was an absolute blast to be part of that, Jacobson said. Quote, for us as their coaches and for our fans, what they have been watching from these guys, the way our guys played, what a blast, unquote. Bourne described the game in similar terms as his head coach. Quote, it is fun, Bourne said. The environment in their crowd is great. The in-state rivalry and all that stuff stacked on top of each other. It was fun. Basketball is supposed to be fun, unquote. Bourne continued and admitted that he would have preferred the win over his pair of buzzer beaters, but said it was a moment that most basketball players dream of. The first half had the look of the Panthers' recent losses at the Bulldogs, pulled into the lead with their perimeter shooting, leading 7-6 to six with 14 minutes 6 seconds remaining in the half. UNI surrendered three consecutive triples as Connor Enright and Oki Jumgros put Drake ahead 15-7. to seven. However, facing the eight-point deficit and nine-point swing, the Panthers managed to avoid collapse and went on a 6-0 to zero run to trim the lead to 15-3. to three. Drake guard DJ Wilkins cashed in on another three-pointer to put the Bulldogs ahead 18-13 to 13 before UNI shut the door on the perimeter. Trailing by five, UNI went on an 11-0 run, powered by triples from James Betts and Landon Wolf, who hit a pair of three-pointers to put UNI ahead for the remainder of the frame. UNI finished the first half the better three-point shooting team, as the Panthers connected on 5 of 13 attempts, and Drake hit just 25% of its 16 attempts from beyond the arc. After giving up a three-point play to Drake guard Roman Penn to open the second half, the Panthers managed to push their lead to 41-33 to with an 8-2 run led by four points from Trey Campbell. Landon Wolf capped the run with his fourth bucket of the game to give him 10 on the night, with 14 minutes remaining in the game. 
The Panthers pushed their lead to double figures as Bourne cashed in on his second three-pointer of the game to give UNI a 46-35 lead with 11 minutes 53 to go in regulation. Over the next 3 minutes 25 seconds of action, Drake erased the Panthers' lead completely as Wilkins sparked a 13-0 run with a jumper at the 11-minute 28 mark of the half, trailing 62-58 to with under a minute to play. Campbell drilled a three-pointer for UNI to pull within one point of the Bulldogs after Bourne missed a layup with 3.2 seconds left in regulation. Penn connected on both free throws to give Drake a commanding 64-61 to lead. Yet, out of the inbounds play, Bourne raced down the court and drilled his fourth three-pointer of the game to send the third straight game in the storied rivalry to overtime, tied at 64-64. to Drake dominated the overtime period to start and jumped out to a 72-67 to lead in the first 2 minutes 24 seconds of the extra frame. The Panthers managed to trim the gap to 74-71 to in the final minute. A controversial jump ball allowed the Panthers to retain possession with 3.2 seconds on the clock. The inbounds pass appeared to be sailing the wrong way, but Bourne made a magic again with another contested three-pointer, his fifth of the game, to force a second overtime period. Drake pulled away in the second extra frame and outscored UNI 14-7 to secure the overtime win. Following the emotionally charged final moments, Jacobson said he does not believe his team is the kind of group to get off track due to the loss. Quote, a game like this can shoot you off track a little bit and make things harder and more challenging, Jacobson said. With this group, it won't. Now we have a story about girls' state wrestling. High school girls' wrestling. Worthern, Waverly, Shellrock have strong opening days. Story filed by Jim Nelson of the Courier's sports editor. Dateline, Coralville. Union of Laporte City's Jillian Worthen is trying to be a better teenager than she was a toddler, nicknamed Monster by her father because she was a rambunctious when she was little. Worthen has embraced the nickname. Quote, I wasn't a very good child, Worthen smiled. Last year's 100-pound state champ and the proverbial favorite at 105 this week advanced to semifinals Thursday at the first Iowa Girls High School State Championships with a two-minute and 52-second pin of Cedar Falls's Lauren Witt, a new wrinkle in the IGHSAU version of the state tournament, has each individual winner signing her name to advance herself in the bracket. After first and second round wins, Worthen diligently signed Jillian Worthen, but after her quarterfinal win, it was Monster. Quote, I talked to Erin Kirtley, and she told me it would be a good idea to sign it as Monster, Worthen said. Worthen advances to face a familiar opponent in Sumner Fredericksburg's Hillary Trainer in the semifinals. Trainer beat Durant's Laney Shelangoski 11-14 to advance. Quote, last year, I didn't make it this far, so I'm just happy to be where I am right now, Trainer said. 
as far as facing Worthen, whom she has lost to this season. Trainer said the mentality is simple. Quote, she is good, Trainer said. Quote, I can't be beat before I am out there. I'm just going to go wrestle my best, and that is all I can ask for, unquote. Two-time state champion Lily Luft advanced to the 130 semifinals with a 9-0 win over Claire Brown of Iowa City High, which followed two first-period pins in rounds one and two. Quote, I feel like I wrestled pretty well in a lot of different situations, Luft said. Tomorrow, it's having the mindset to keep wrestling at a high level and be relentless, unquote. Decora went 16-0 on the backside and led after the opening day. The Vikings have just one semifinalists, defending champion Naomi Simon at 170. She scored a major decision over Autumn Ellsbury of South Tama, 10-0, in the quarterfinals. Decora has 82 points, eight better than runner-up Waverly Shellrock, who has three semifinalists and three on the backside. Amber Hoth at 100, Ava Heiss at 125, and Lily Stahl at 135. Stahl dropped a hard-fought 7-6 decision to Destiny Crumb of East Buchanan in the quarterfinals. Quote, I think we are battling, WSR head coach Josh Meyer said, as the deeper we get into the tournament, the battling part is going to take a lot of it. There are a lot of tough girls, and we can consistently battle for as long as we need to. We will be all right, unquote. Cedar Falls had a strong morning session, but could not maintain the moment. Lauren Witt at 105 and April Halser at 125 lost quarterfinal matches and need one to win medal. Three other Tigers need one more victory to reach the podium. Jasmine Olson at 115, Laura Nichols at 155, and Briar Ludeman at 235. Independence had a pair of wrestlers reach the semifinals. Second-seeded Dakota Whitman pinned Benton Community's Lizzie Wolf in 5 minutes 58 to advance at 135. Rachel Eddy reached the 190 semifinals with a 7-5 sudden victory over Ella Brown of Cedar Rapids Kennedy at 190. New Hampton Turkey Valley's Allie Rustler went 3-0 at 145, including a one-minute and three-second pin of Phoenix Gripe of Williamsburg in the quarterfinals. Waterloo East's Libby Stocks went one and two and was eliminated. She opened with a pair over Alyssa Eckhart of Midland in four minutes and 49 seconds. After dropping her second-round match, Stocks was leading eight to three over Dulce Lopez of Postville, when she was caught and pinned in the second period. Stocks was still proud of her sophomore season as she finished 30-4. and four. Quote, I was really proud of how this tournament turned out, Stocks said. After all the work I put in, it felt good to get here. From the morning session's two rounds, the Gohawks led with 46 points, with East Buchanan hot on their heels with 43. 
WSR got a pair of pins from Stau, Snyder, and Henricks. Jormesi opened with a fall before edging Haley Sertrum of Linmar 3-1 in the second round. All nine of the Gohawks qualifiers were still alive after two rounds. Perhaps the biggest upset of the day came from Applington Parkersburg Grundy Center's Grace Storjohan. The freshman pinned third-seeded Candace Pape of MFL in six minutes in their 120 second-round match. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for our reading of the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, February 3rd. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can access a recording of today's reading of the Courier and the other newspapers around the state of Iowa that we read on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to Your Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. (laughs) 